You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Heritage Voices, episode 71. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'm your host. And today we are talking about tribal collaboration at Archaeology Southwest. Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge that the lands I'm recording on today are part of the Nuch, or Ute People's Treaty Lands, the Dineta, and the Ancestral Puebloan Homeland. Today, we have Ashley Thompson back on the show. Ashley, would you like to introduce yourself? Of course. Hello, everybody. I am Ashley Thompson. I use she, her, hers pronouns. I am currently based in Donna Otham and Pasquayaki lands, also known as Tucson, Arizona. I am a Ojibwe or Anishinaabe archaeologist working as director of tribal collaboration at Archaeology Southwest, which is a nonprofit organization based in Tucson. I have my master's in anthropology from the University of Arizona. I come from the Red Lake Ojibwe community, though I was raised away from Red Lake, and I currently am working full time. All right. Well, welcome back to the show, Ashley. And for those of you that haven't already, you should go back and listen to Ashley's first episode on the show. Um, That was episode 21. Can you believe that? (laughs) That was 50 episodes ago. (laughs) So that was, yeah, four and a half years. Four and a half years. That's crazy. But that episode, episode 21, Mm -hmm. Food Sovereignty and Natives Outdoors. So if if you haven't listened to that one yet, definitely go back and and take a listen and we're going to kind of jump jump straight in from uh, where we were at that episode. But yeah, so excited to to have you back and to to get to chat some more. I'm excited to be here. Okay, so I said let's start with your your masters, but I suppose for those that haven't listened to your last episode, do you want to give the 60 second, you know, super quick version of how you you got into this field and and what got you interested in this kind of work? I first got into anthropology as an undergraduate student at the University of Minnesota Morris, and I serendipitously ended up in um, for a freshman seminar class that was taught by an anthropologist, and I really loved her class. And so I took more anthropology classes, and she also happened to be an American Indian Studies faculty member. And so I found that I really loved both of those subjects. And I really found people and their cultures fascinating. I really loved studying indigenous history as well as contemporary issues. And I thought that archaeology would be a good fit for me as someone who enjoys doing fieldwork, learning about the past, interacting with material culture and wanting to work with tribes. And so I saw that there was a need for more indigenous archaeologists. And I decided to study it in undergrad as well as graduate school. And now it's the field that I work in. Okay. So yeah, last time we we talked four and a half years ago, which is, again, just crazy. You were working on your master's. You had the topic and everything, but you were still writing and figuring out what you wanted to bring back to the community specifically. So can you, first of all, refresh briefly our listeners on 
the the topic of your master's and then what ended up happening there? Yeah. So for my master's, I wanted to work with my tribe, the Red Lake Ojibwe. And so I was in contact with the tribal historic preservation officer there. And uh, we came up with a project that would look into the traditional foodways at Red Lake. And so we decided that I could do an overview of what they are and their importance to the community. Part of the methodology was doing interviews with community members who worked or are knowledgeable with food. And so I got to talk to elders about our traditional foodways and they really were the backbone of my thesis, what they were willing to share with me. And I identified seven major foodways of the community and then outlined their importance, which includes not only physical health, but also cultural survivance or like continuation of our traditional ways via food. It's importance to the community's emotional and spiritual well-being and an important way to connect with the land and further develop tribal members' relationships with the land. And so I finished my master's and then about less than a year later, the pandemic happened. (laughs) And so I was going to build off of the master's for the dissertation, but I was treading water in graduate school while while the pandemic was going on because I wanted to continue doing community interviews, but I felt really uncomfortable interviewing at-risk people for my dissertation. And so I held off on the project and I ended up taking a step back from academia. I'm technically on a leave of absence. Not really sure if I'm going to return or not. I'm still trying to see what direction I want to go in. I'm happy right now working full-time in my field. So that's kind of where I I left off with you. Because I remember, I think when we were talking, I was transcribing interviews for my master's project. And so, yeah, it's been a while and a lot has happened since then. Yeah. Yeah. Just a couple things. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Is there any interest in the future, Um, maybe not like through a PhD or something like that, but obviously you're working with Archaeology Southwest right now, and that's based in Tucson, which is very far from Red Lake. Is there an interest at some point in continuing that work or or doing work again with with your community? Like doing the research made me really interested in our traditional foods on a personal level. And I think like Cooking and working with food has been more of an interest of of mine because of my research. And I, I, on a personal level, I'm not in a place where I can really engage in our traditional food ways just because I'm based in the desert and I don't even have like a garden because I don't have a yard. (laughs) But I think that it taught me a lot about food sovereignty and why it's important and has definitely been in the back of my mind for like, if I move back to the Great Lakes region, or even if I can have my own garden someday, I've always wanted to learn hunting as well, that like, I am interested in learning more on a personal level. And then if the opportunity in the future presents itself, I definitely would love to work again with Red Lake, because 
I feel like it's one of my homes and I feel very comfortable there and I love learning and being part of the community there. So yes, let's switch to your current position, which I'm really excited to hear more about. This was actually like what got us starting about, uh, started talking about recording another episode again, was this current work that you're doing. So can you tell us a little bit about kind of more of an overview of your position to start, and then we could go into to some specific projects? Sure. So for people unfamiliar with the organization, Archaeology Southwest is a nonprofit organization based in Tucson, Arizona. I think we have something like 20, over 20 full-time staff and we do a lot. And so there's people that do research. There's people that work on advocacy campaigns to protect cultural landscapes. We do outreach and education about archaeology and as well as like respectful engagement with, with cultural sites and then we, we do things in the community and have volunteers. And so there's a lot going on. But one of the aspects of the organization that really drew me to the work was they try to practice preservation archaeology, which I think is in line with a lot of tenets and values of indigenous archaeology. But basically, they try to like not do as destructive methodology that traditional archaeology does. So like, for example, you know, when we're excavating, you're actually destroying and disturbing a site. And part of preservation archaeology as well is using descendant communities' values and input in the work. And so the organization was looking to do more and I think maybe better tribal collaboration in their work. And so this position, it was listed as director of tribal of the tribal collaboration initiative. And the job description when I was looking at it was really long, but it was a, a newly created position that was meant to help guide the research team, the education, educator people, the communications people, everyone at the organization and working with indigenous communities. And another aspect of my job was we have this anti-looting and anti-vandalism program called Save History. And so that was another big portion of my work is helping to maintain the website and the social media and the content we put out about respectful engagement with archaeological sites. And so that's a little bit about what I do. <laughs> and it's pretty uh, diverse. And I work with um, a lot of different people, but I really enjoy it. And I get to keep working with Indigenous people, which is really great. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I think we're, we're about at a break point. But when we come back, first, uh, let me ask you, about, you know, what is what does a day in the life actually look like in your job? And I mean, I know I'm sure that imagines that varies a lot, but you know, if you could just paint a picture for us when we get back of what that job actually like looks like on a on a day-to-day basis, we will be right back here in a moment. So we are back and 
let's go straight into painting that picture of what a day in the life of Ashley Thompson looks like. (laughs) Yeah. So as I said, I do a lot of different things. And so I'm going to talk about a month in the life of Ashley (laughs) instead of a day because one day might, (laughs) might, yeah, one day might look completely different than the next. And so for example, in November, I was doing a few different things. One was planning and executing a training. Um, And so part of the, the Save History campaign is also training archaeologists in the Archaeological Resources Protection Act, as well as law enforcement in ARPA. And so when there's a violation of the act, and I guess maybe I should just do a a quick summary of ARPA. Um, It's basically (laughs) federal legislation meant to protect archaeological resources on federal and tribal lands. And so it criminalizes like looting of sites and vandalizing of archaeological sites. And so archaeologists are often called to do a damage assessment in which they record all of the damage at the site and that that damage assessment is used by the judiciary to see the value of the damage done and help inform them on on the next steps for someone who is found violating ARPA. And so it's kind of like a niche thing that some archaeologists have experience in doing a damage assessment, others don't. I really didn't have much experience at all in ARPA prior to this job. And so We host trainings on how to do damage assessments for both archaeologists and law enforcement. And in our trainings, we've been combining them because it's a really unique task when archaeologists and scientists have to come together with law enforcement to do a damage assessment because the law enforcement, you know, is going to be collecting evidence and moving forward with the the ARPA violation aspect of the case. And the archaeologist is the expert who's going to write the damage assessment and might be called to be an expert witness if it goes to trial. Like in November, we were invited out to a community in California where we got to train some tribal monitors, some federal federally employed archaeologists that worked for the dif- some different national uh, forests in California, as well as we had one uh, law enforcement person from a national park from Joshua Tree. So that that took up like a, a whole week of training out in California, where we went and did classroom training as well as a field exercise to try to recreate an ARPA crime scene and. Yeah, archaeologists familiar with what what we do when we come across um, an ARPA violation. And so that's a pretty significant part of my work. I'm also recently been working on writing a report. <laughs> it's like more of the boring um, aspects, but it's actually a report that comes out of something pretty neat. We were able to do one of these trainings while also restoring a site that had been damaged decades ago. And so there was a bunch of looters holes at this archaeological site in Tucson. And we were able to take a few different groups of people out there. Some were 
employed by a tribe in Arizona. Some of them were archaeologists for the Forest Service. And we were able to train them on how to do damage assessment and then also basically backfilled these looters holes. And I'm also, so we were writing the report for that. And then I'm kind of involved in a few different projects at Archaeology Southwest. So like last month, I was helping organize these meetings we have between our tribal working group, which we we started that a few months into my job, like so earlier this year, 2022. And it's basically a group of indigenous archaeologists who advise our research team on how to make one of their projects more relevant and better for Indigenous people. And so I do a little bit of that. And then I'm also working on like a national campaign where we're trying to get a national conservation area established. The campaign is called Respect Great Bend. And so Great Bend of the Gila is this river that that runs, well, it actually doesn't run completely anymore, unfortunately. But this area known as Great Bend of the Gila is west of the Phoenix area. And in this area, there's thousands of petroglyphs, archaeological sites, trails that indigenous people have walked for hundreds of years. And we're basically trying to get a national conservation area established there while also uh, working with the affiliated tribal nations. And so those are just like some of the things I do and you can find me doing at any given time. And so it's actually really nice to have such varied work. Get to do a little bit of traveling, some field work, some training, writing and and networking with tribes. And so, so yeah, that's a little bit about <laughs> what I do. And anyone wanting to learn more about the the Great Bend of the Gila project, I did a podcast with uh, a couple of your Archaeology Southwest colleagues, episode 54, Quatsan Voices, Quatsan Views. So definitely go check that out if you're interested in learning more. It's it's a really interesting interview. Um, it was really fun. On another note, I should also probably mention that Archaeology Southwest, at least in the past, I'm not sure if they are today, has been a sponsor of this show. But I also just think that they're neat and, you know, really appreciate the work that they do. But I do want to throw in that caveat so people are aware. And then the other thing that I want to say about Archaeology Southwest is that they also have a really awesome newsletter um, that that goes out, I think, every week. And there's just a ton of, of links to different podcasts and projects that are happening. And especially if you're in the Southwest, uh, it's really, there's a lot of really interesting stuff in there. But I think even if you're not in the Southwest, there would probably be stuff you would find in there that would be really interesting. So I definitely highly recommend signing up for the the Archaeology Southwest newsletter. If you like the show, there's a lot of of, uh, similar things in the newsletter. Okay, so going back to the topic at hand, though, you mentioned that the the training that you did was one aspect of Save History. Is there other portions of that project? What else are you doing with that? Save History, we do a lot of things. And so another important aspect of Save History is our outreach with it. And so we have a website, savehistory.org, as well as 
a Facebook and an Instagram where we do two things. There's a detection aspect of our website where we're trying to have a place for people who witness or see a looted or vandalized site, a place where they can submit a tip. And so we have an online reporting form and a phone number where people can call. And so that's the detection part. Um, And I, I should say, like, if you see someone actively looting or vandalizing a site, please don't approach them. Go to a safe location and call the law enforcement or the land managing agency of whose land you're on. And so like if you're in the forest and in a national forest, you'd want to call maybe that national forest and let them know um, because our priority is first people's safety. And so, but yeah, part of safe history is this detection part where we're trying to make sure we're catching vandalized and looted sites. And then the other aspect is the education part. And so we also have a blog on our website and we try to shorten blog pieces and make them into social media posts. But these blog posts are supposed to share with the public how and why it's harmful to Indigenous people when when their sites are looted or when their sites are vandalized. And so it's our hope that by sharing stories from Native people, that it will develop a respect for and an understanding of why cultural sites are not just important to Indigenous ancestors, but are really significant to tribes today and future Indigenous people who, you know, will continue to interact and be connected to to these archaeological sites. So if you want to learn more from different tribal members about how stealing of artifacts has impacted them, make sure to visit our website or check out our social media. Yeah, so that that sounds really important. Sounds like really important work, really important project. And thank you for sharing all those places that people can go to learn more and, and learn more about the the impact. It's also really kind of interesting timing, I guess, to be talking about this because was it last week that that Congress passed the the Stop Act? So that's that's another exciting big moment in in terms of of protecting material indigenous material culture from leaving mm-hmm. the U.S. So it's kind of, I don't know, I was thinking about that while you were, while you were talking too. Yeah. Moving on, I, I'm curious about what, you know, in this position, and obviously you're working with, with a lot of, of different archaeologists and also a lot of indigenous people, what are some pieces of advice that you would give to people that, that want to do tribal collaboration work? Right. One thing that my coworker Sky Begay and I came up with was a model for tribal collaboration for our organization and basically a philosophical understanding of what does it mean to work collaboratively with tribes. And one of the first and I think more important pieces of advice for people, companies, organizations wanting to work with descendant communities is that I think a lot of indigenous people 
especially in our realm of archaeology, they get consulted a lot. And if you want to like do meaningful work and collaborative work with tribes, it's important to move beyond consultation and build relationships first and maintain those relationships. And so, you know, there's a lot of consulting that goes on with tribal historic preservation offices, for example, where um, they're notified of a construction project and they're asked if they want to be involved or, you know, comment. And I would say that that's like not true collaboration. And so it's really helpful for researchers or whoever to, instead of, you know, focusing on like the project, focus on how you can be a good good relative to indigenous communities and involve tribes in the entire process from beginning like conceptual stages of a project to the to the very end because you know i don't think like that it's super black and white in terms of like this project is collaborative and it's not i feel like there's a scale where it's like kind of collaborative to like very collaborative and projects fall in in between. And so I think that building relationships, maintaining them and involving descendant communities in the entire process is, is really important. And then the other piece of advice was, I think for a lot of indigenous people, especially like in light of a lot of justice and equity and diversity conversations that I think came out of like the 2020 Black Lives Matter discussions is that it's important that your actions speak louder than your words. And so I think that it's important like to do things like indigenous land acknowledgements or to like make a proclamation of, you know, Native American Heritage Month et cetera, et cetera. But I think what speaks even more loudly is, is actions that give back to indigenous communities that, that help them, that build capacity for them. And that actually like, rather than coming into community and like trying to say that you're going to do this for them, I think it's important that people listen to native people and hear out what they need. And I think that, you know, through the relationship building process with with different communities, that those types of conversations, those opportunities to listen to community needs and values and desires uh, can help structure projects in a good way and and make sure that that it can be beneficial to more than just the researcher or just the company that I think that it's important to like, if you're going to be in a relationship with someone that you, you also are asking yourself, what can I give back in this relationship and how can I be a good relative? Yeah. Well, and on, on that note, we're already at our second break point, but yeah, everybody go rewind and re-listen to that again (laughs) and then, and then come back after the break. All right. Okay. So we're back from our break and you know, thinking back on these two conversations, so last time, you know, four and a half years ago, and this time, in this past four and a half years um, since since we last talked, what have been, or have there been, 
any any major learning or aha moments or or things that you would want to to share with our audience? Yeah. So one big one that I've been noticing in my work is that I'm a huge advocate for tribal collaboration, but it is much easier said than done. (laughs) So there's a lot of constraints working with Indigenous communities. And I think one major one is time constraints. So, you know, in academia and people that work with grants, there's deadlines and there's like certain timelines that we we're required to stick to. But working with Indigenous people, like they have their own timelines and their Mm -hmm. own hierarchy of needs that they work on. And so for me, just kind of seeing that play out in the the real world, like we want to get feedback from a tribe. um, And so we send something to them. It might take a while because, you know, the tribal council might only meet once a week or or once a month. There's definite like time constraints in doing collaboration with tribe. And then not only time constraints, but there's also capacity constraints. And so there's like a need for, I think, indigenous people to be involved in all types of community work, including tribal historic preservation and archaeology. But a lot of times those offices or those departments are really overburdened with work. They might not have the capacity to take on outside projects that aren't sort of regulatory mandated projects. And so it's really great, you know, I when I hear people that want to like work with tribes or like do a project that gets approved by tribes. But before you do that, just understand that there is a lot that goes into running a tribal nation, especially I think if you're an outsider to the community, you might not be like a top priority for time or for effort. And so I think also that goes along well with like, And I think it happens a lot more now than it used to, but thinking about how you can be in a reciprocal relationship with people you want to collaborate. So whether that means giving them honoraria or, you know, some sort of agreement you have to provide a service or whatever it may be, think about like, how can you give back to the community and don't it's not like a one-way thing in a relationship. It goes both ways. And so that's some of the the major things I've learned, I think, the last few years. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm always the super annoying when I'm putting in a proposal or, or things like, no, we need to, we need to extend this timeline and make it as long as possible. And also I, mm-hmm. I think one thing that you were touching on that is really, you know, there was a moment not too long ago where this really was highlighted again for me, is that what we're working on, it's important, but also sometimes it's not that important compared to like the major things that the people that we're working with are having to deal with. So, you know, because a lot of times we're working with tribal Mm -hmm. leadership or we're working with, you know, cultural leaders, um, spiritual leaders, So sometimes the things that end up on their plates are just, they're just a lot more important than what we're doing. Not that what we're doing is not important, but it's not life or death. And so just kind of remembering that like in the scheme of things, like what seems like 
the most urgent and important thing in the world to you, like might not be in their top 10, you know, and that that's okay. <laughs> so that's, yeah, I was just thinking about that when you're saying that. And there was a, a moment not too, too long ago that really like brought that into to focus again, where it was like, okay, like they are doing really important things. And, you know, when I can get their attention, that's, that's great. But, you know, it's not the most important thing. So, yeah, sorry, went on a tangent there. But, you know, kind of continuing on in that vein, is there a direction that you'd like to, I mean, you already were touching on this in what you were just saying, but maybe there's other things that you'd like to add of what direction you'd like to see, you know, anthropology or, or tribal collab- collaboration efforts uh, move to in the future? Like, are there, what would you like to see, you know, more of or less of or changes? I think that one really big topic that's come up a lot lately with the Bears Ears National Monument is this idea of tribal co-management and this recognition that indigenous people are the the first stewards of all of the land in North America and that we might know some things about managing them. So I, I really like what the administration, current administration is saying, like the secretary Deb Holland of the Department of the Interior, of the importance of indigenous co-management of federally managed lands. And so, like, I love hearing that, but I would like to see see actual tangible examples and collaboration, co-stewardship, co-management of these lands. And I think that there's also, like, this ties really well into another hot topic right now, which is the land back movement. And it's, it's, it's a really neat movement. And so I think like it can mean returning land to tribes, but it can also be just reinstating indigenous management practices and stewardship practices on the land and getting native people involved in stewardship. And so for me, I, I love, I would love to see just like this conversation continue. I hope that like land back and tribal co-management isn't just a trend and that it's actual, hopefully change in how our lands are managed. And on my Google alerts, I follow issues of land back and repatriation too of ancestral remains and material culture. And so I would just love to see these policies actually executed, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So now, I, okay. Again, two episodes, four and a half years. I I mean, I'm just personally really curious. First, again, I, I'd love to know more about, you know, where you personally would like to take this position at Archaeology Southwest specifically first. Um, so, so your, your dream vision for, for what you'll be doing in this, this work or accomplishing. I think that we're definitely working towards what I want to see, which is true relationship building with the tribes whose lands we work on. And so 
I'm really happy that we've made strides in that regard. We've formed a tribal working group. We are doing a lot of outreach to the local indigenous communities of Arizona and beyond. And we're really trying to listen to Tippo's cultural and tribal leaders about how our work can be useful and relevant to them. And so I'd like to just keep heading in that direction. And I think like even before I came on to the job, because I've been in it less than a year now, they were doing a lot to work with indigenous communities. And as you mentioned, like you had a whole episode on Great Bend of the Gila. And so there's like examples of that. Um, also, there's an example of we have one of our archaeologists works in Chaco and does a lot of outreach with the New Mexico Pueblos and other affiliated nations there. And so just continuing in our relationship building and finding out ways that we can help as an organization, how we can help tribes accomplish their goals when it comes to protection of their cultural landscapes. Yeah. And okay. So the second part of my question, is there anything like maybe outside of archaeology Southwest, any other thoughts of, of where you'd like to go with your work or I don't know, personally, whatever, just like any, any additional visions that you have for, for your future? Yeah. So one thing I've been involved over the last decade is a desire to help protect, you know, water, the earth more than human can from the climate crisis. And so I think like overall, you know, in my work right now, we're working on preserving cultural landscapes through national conservation areas, through stewarding certain properties that we are either buy or are given to us. And I think that helps contribute to helping to heal the earth from the climate crisis. And so I'm sure, I mean, people that are at least in touch with news and Indian country, there's been some research, you know, that shows that indigenous people and indigenous lands protect a large percentage of the world's biodiversity. And I, I really think that preservation work, like what we do at Archaeology Southwest, can help protect more lands. And especially when we are working with indigenous communities. And so I, I would say like that's a major goal of mine is as someone who is really outside a lot as an outdoor recreationalist, like running hiking, climbing, that sort of thing. And as someone who's attended quite a few events aimed at stopping harm to the earth. So like, for example, attending the No Dakota Access Pipeline camps and when that was going on on the Standing Rock Reservation or like advocating for the protection of Bears Ears and, or advocating for the protection of Oak Flat here in Arizona, which is currently under threat from mining threats. I think that that's my overall 
vision is to just help curb the harms caused by capitalism, settler colonialism, (laughs) in terms of like protecting sacred sites. Because when we protect the archaeological material, we're also protecting like the biodiversity and and the land. And so I I see archaeology and indigenous archaeology as a way to not only um, preserve our sacred sites, but also like everything and everyone that lives within them. Right, right. And that brings up the the regularly scheduled reminder that natural resources are cultural resources and that, um, you know, cultural resources are not just archaeology, but but include all of those intangibles that you were just discussing that that are not necessarily like fitting into that category of of archaeology. Exactly. Yeah. And I also want to put in a shout out to the fact that you also did an episode um, with the A Life in Ruins podcast, Indigenous Archaeology and the Save Heritage Campaign with Ashley Thompson. So that's their episode 132, which, man, Carlton came on this podcast before he started that podcast. But you can tell that they do a weekly one and we only do a monthly because 132, that's impressive. (laughs) But anyway, (laughs) (laughs) definitely check out that episode as well. So again, A Life in Ruins, episode 132, Indigenous Archaeology and the Save Heritage Campaign. I believe that you you mentioned that you tried to kind of keep it a little different. So there would still be good stuff if people listen to both, right? Correct. There's some overlap, but I tried to, to think of new additional things to add. Well, even even if there is overlap, I'm sure it's it's worth re-listening to because there's lots of like great little nuggets in there of like, oh yeah, that's a great reminder about this. And you know, oh yeah, that's an important topic. So I would say mm-hmm. I can pretty much guarantee it's worth <laughs> listening to both. And, you know, the first episode <laughs> with, with Ashley on this podcast again. So episode 21. So you got you got lots of opportunities to to learn from Ashley. So, so again, I just wanted to say thank you so much for, for coming on again, taking, you know, probably four hours out of your life now between these two episodes to come talk to me and, and to educate our listeners about all of these different amazing topics. So thank you to you and, and thank you to Archaeology Southwest for, for all the work that you guys are doing. Thank you for having me and us. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash heritagevoices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Music Store. Also, please share with your friends or write us a review. Sharing and reviewing helps more people find the show and gets the perspectives of Heritage Voices' amazing guests out there into the world. Don't we just need more of that in anthropology and land management? If you have any more questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org If you'd like to volunteer to be on the show as a guest or even a co-host, reach out to me as well, Jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org You can also follow more of what I'm doing on Facebook at Living Heritage Anthropology and the nonprofit Living Heritage Research Council or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, huge thank you to Lyle Belenqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo.
This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.